0: Exciting news at This Week Health, starting May 16th, our keynote show is moving to Thursdays. Catch every episode weekly on our This Week Health Conference channel. Don't miss conversations with top health system leaders designed to transform healthcare one connection at a time. Subscribe to This Week Health Conference and stay updated every Thursday.
1: Today on This Week Health. I think pharmacists tend to be good at closing care gaps, developing plans, Patient advocacy and navigating the healthcare delivery system, essentially, sort of functioning between the physician, the nurse, and the patient experience. And I think from a technology standpoint, pharmacists were early adopters in some cases of tech, maybe a little ahead of the curve.
0: Thanks for joining us on this week's Health keynote. My name is Bill Russell, I'm a former CIO for a 16 hospital system and creator of This Week Health, a channel dedicated to keeping health IT staff current and engaged. Special thanks to our keynote show sponsors, Sirius Healthcare, VMware, Transcarent, Prescani, Sempris, and Veritas for choosing to invest in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. All right, today we are joined by Craig Kwiatowski, the CIO for Cedar sinai Craig, how close did I come to your name on that one? You got it pretty close, Bill. Pretty close. No edits. I appreciate that. I'm looking forward to this conversation. You're not the only farm D that we have seen take this route to the CIO chair. We're going to talk a little bit about that, the pharmacist background and how it plays a role. We're going to talk about stepping into the new role. We're going to talk about some priorities. So I'm looking forward to getting into this conversation, but my listeners always Forced me to start with this question, which is tell us about Cedars. Tell us about the communities that you serve.
1: Wow. Yeah. Thank you. Well, again, thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. That's a big, a big one. I'll try to narrow it down as best I can. But I guess maybe a little shamelessly, I should probably start with the fact that we're all very proud here that we were recently honored with the U.S. News and World Report, number one in California and number two in the nation. And so I think we're still sort of in the halo effect of that announcement. It's terrific recognition for the organization, but more importantly, I think it's terrific recognition for the people. It's really a special place. And I think a lot of our success ties to the fact that you know, it's a people-first and, uh, and patient-first sort of orientation, which maybe more to directly answer your question, ties back to the history of the organization. Uh, it's Judaic tradition. Uh, and those sort of ethical and cultural tenets that were part of its founding in the early 1900s, small community hospital, like measured in rooms, uh, and uh, a hospice, and grew over the decades to Mount Sinai Hospital, merged with Cedars Sinai of, or Cedars of Lebanon in uh, the 60s, and today it's a 900 bed um, community hospital, uh, academic medical center the largest academic medical center west of the Mississippi, which is, I guess, a little bit of a claim to fame of sorts. But it's no longer just Cedars Medical Center. Over the past decade or so, we've grown really into a health system. And the the system includes the main medical center, of course, Cedars-Sinai Marina Del Rey Hospital, which is a 130-bed hospital over in the marina, We also have some affiliate hospitals, Huntington Health in Pasadena, which is about 620 licensed beds, and Torrance Memorial Hospital in Torrance, California, which is about 440 beds. And so if you add all that math up, it's about 200, a little over 200 licensed beds. And I don't remember, but over 100,000 admissions annually. And so that's an addition, of course, to our ambulatory networks and urgent care and sort of that footprint.
0: The Cedar footprint really has grown over the last couple of years. You talked about Torrance, you talked about Huntington. I remember some sort of JV with Providence as well to build into a community that wasn't well-served. Is that, is that yeah, still good? your
1: memory is good. We have a JV with Providence actually in Chitarzana. We have sort of a 4951 ownership arrangement there and we're excited about that. That's really helped grow our network in the valley in that space. We're actually with them building a new hospital on that site. And so that's been a great partnership as well.
0: I don't know why that one surprised me, It's but it sort of <laughs> did because you're, you're competitors in many ways, but there was this area that wasn't served all that well. And you guys stepped up together to serve that area.
1: Yeah. yeah well, I think we were already in that space. We were in that space together. And so this was a, a way to sort of merge our mutual interests and sort of grow and and do that. And I agree, it's a little bit unique or a little, more than a little unique, I think, from the Providence perspective, but we have a long history here of partnerships and looking for ways that we can serve the community.
0: Yeah. So sometimes people
1: get jaded and
0: they think, why would a company do a national search and select someone from within the building? And I talked to some people who are candidates from the outside, great candidates for the role that you're currently sitting in. These are real searches. I think people think that they're just going through it, but these are real searches. They bring people in and they're very qualified. What did the process look like from from your side?
1: Hmm. Well, the search was real. It was quite real, I assure you. It was a comprehensive search, a multi-step process, several rounds of interviews, and I don't know, what seemed like countless conversations on my side. And I don't know, maybe it's probably going to sound hard to believe, but I don't remember a lot of the specifics about like sort of the nuts and bolts of all the steps, but it was a long process, lasted several months. And in hindsight, it was a bit of a blur. And I think, frankly, because when the search was going on, there wasn't a lot of room to pause and reflect and sort of ruminate about some of those things our team's We're so, so busy delivering on all the planned projects and priorities. And, And like most organizations, our demand typically outpaces our supply. So there was and is no shortage of things to pay attention to and dealing with the pandemic and all that went along with that. So my mind and focus was predominantly occupied on the ongoing work, keeping the trains running on time, so to speak. And maybe that was a good thing in hindsight, not to get overly caught up in the whole process And I also tried to be very sensitive to the fact that, you know, it's not just about me, obviously, we have a wonderful team in our IT department. And it was important for me to function as though I already had the job while I was in the interim role. It was important to maintain continuity, stability, to continue to push things forward. Things move so quickly and there really isn't an option to, I don't know, to delay direction and decision-making until the new CIO starts. And so it was really just sort of a continuation of sort of all of that work. And I was honored, to say the least, to be among the candidates considered. It was stiff competition, as I learned a little later in the process. But I'm incredibly proud. I'm honored. I'm humbled to have been selected as a CIO. and again, it's a, it's a special place.
0: So you replaced Darren Dworkin, who somewhat has a a mythical kind of persona around the industry. He, he knows everybody. He's connected with everybody. But I, I think one of the things that's so impressive is early on, his first 100 days in the role were really quite interesting because he came in during a, an EHR. I and mean, we can say it now, it was a debacle back in the day. I mean, he, he was there for what, a decade or so, Darren was. But back in the day, I mean, the EHR had all sorts of issues. It was in the LA newspapers and whatnot. And Darren came in and and had to uh, wrestle that to the ground. So his first 100 days were firefighting and doing that whole thing. What does the first 100, I mean, you were an interim already. What does the first 100 days look like for somebody who's going from, you're familiar with the organization and you're already in, in interim. So do the first 100 days look very different for you? Do they look like just a continuation of what you've been
1: doing? Well, yeah, I think uh, by comparison, my first 100 days were different than probably Darren's first 100 or first 1,000 for sure. The time when he joined the organization, as you described, was different than sort of the state of maturity we're at now in terms of our capabilities. And lots of credit goes to Darren for getting us there. And so I was named the interim CIO immediately, really effectively, immediately upon the announcement of Darren's departure. So I feel like my first 100 days started immediately at that point, which is now about 450 days ago. And so I was interim for several months before being named the CIO and sort of as that process worked its way through. And so the early interim time period probably was more typical of what some might consider the first 100 days or I don't know, the honeymoon period, if there is such a thing, although really, as an internal candidate and as an interim, I didn't think there was really sort of that much of a honeymoon. And I guess regardless of what we call it, I was already already knowledgeable about the work, well-connected within the organization. I knew the names of folks across and within the organization, had built relationships at various levels of the organization, and I had great familiarity with the culture. And Sometimes cultural adaptation for a new person at an organization often takes the longest to acclimate to, and just in addition to the sort of fire hose effect of all new information. And so I was already leading a lot of the work within the application portfolio. When that was my previous role, I had responsibility for really the whole application stack. And so that was more of a matter of continuing to run with the ball. Certainly an advantage for me to have that as a starting point, but by contrast, a very different first 100 days than perhaps Darren had.
0: Yeah, I would imagine. Talk a little bit about the handoff. I mean, was it sort of a sudden thing and, hey, here it is? Or did you have some time with you and Darren to hand things off?
1: Yeah, I think we had a good amount of time. And I don't know, Darren's announcement felt a little sudden in a sense. I don't know if you're ever really sort of prepared for that, but Darren and I had a great relationship, a strong relationship he was always very inclusive with me. And so I knew what was ahead. I knew what was going on within the organization in terms of strategy and tactics. And it was clear what was expected of me and the teams. And he and I had worked together for sort of directly for several years. And I was involved directly and indirectly in the vast, vast majority of the projects going on within the IT department during Darren's tenure. So I don't think there was really any weren't really any big surprises to be had. That said, I think in any new role, I learned something new every day, and that's part of the fun. And Darren and I did spend some, I don't know, more formal transitioning of items that I hadn't been as close to, along with some executive leaders within the organization. And it was a very smooth process. The immediate sort of need to know learning curve wasn't terribly steep for me, thankfully. And Darren and I connect fairly regularly. And if I ever have a question for him, he's always willing and able and quick to assist, which is which has been great. Yeah, that's fantastic.
0: We'll get back to our show in just a moment. I wanted to take this opportunity to invite you to our next two webinars on September 8th. We're going to have challenges and solutions to unmanaged devices in healthcare. This is a significant problem in healthcare. And here we're going to discuss the tools that are obviously integral to delivering health, but are sometimes some of the most vulnerable tools we have in the health system. Guests are gonna come from leaders from Children's of Los Angeles and Intermountain. And they're gonna share their experience in maintaining their devices on September 8th at 1 p.m. Eastern time. If you haven't figured it out yet, we do all of our webinars on Thursday at 1 p.m. Our second webinar will be Patient room next, improve care efficiency. The patient room is evolving inside and outside of your four walls. What is coming next to improve clinical effectiveness through technology? With guests from health systems like yours, we're gonna discuss machine vision, ambient listening, AI care companions, and much more. And I've been having some of the conversations around this patient room next, exciting technologies, really interesting use cases. I think you're gonna wanna set aside some time for this one. Before both webinars, check out the briefing campaigns that are being released on our channel, on the conference channel around this. These conversations are going to give you a sneak peek into the discussions that we are going to have. You can find these episodes and register for both webinars at thisweekhealth.com. Both webinars will be in the top right-hand corner, and I look forward to seeing you there. Now, back to our show. So you have a pharmacist background, Scott Jocelyn also. CIO, pharmacist background. How does that help you in your new role?
1: It's relatively unique. I know Scott and one other at this point. I'm really proud to represent the profession in some small, small way. I think that it's a unique perspective in some ways as a pharmacist. It allows me to approach things as a clinician, as an operational leader, and someone who does have some experience in technology, which I don't know, it tends to be a little bit more prominent or at least in in days past, it was more prominent in pharmacy, I think, than maybe some other professions or other areas, clinical disciplines, not to offend any of my other clinical colleagues out there. But I think pharmacists tend to be good at closing care gaps, developing plans, patient advocacy, and navigating the healthcare delivery system essentially sort of functioning between the physician, the nurse, and the patient experience. And as I said, I think from a technology standpoint, uh, pharmacists were early adopters in some cases of tech, maybe a little ahead of the curve. I was using order entry systems 30 plus years ago as a pharmacy technician. They were rudimentary, but they were there. And there was other early examples of, Clinical decision support for IV admixture, parental nutrition, some dose and allergy checking, and what seemed pretty advanced at the to even more advanced capabilities around robotics and dispensing and packaging capabilities. It's always been fun stuff for me, and maybe I'm wired in that way. But I think a way to answer the question also is I think pharmacists are wired in a way in their DNA, so to speak. Again, these are broad generalizations. Speaking mostly for myself, towards precision, accuracy, logic, safety. And I think some of those traits tend to exist in folks who work in IT. I think, particularly, safety, understanding that the little things that we do have intended and sometimes unintended consequences. And the expectation that systems, solutions are delivered safely, reliably, with thought to their design, accounting for the human factors and, and all of that. And I think those things are just foundational to the work we do within technology and IT. And I think there's just some natural similarities there. But, you know, I admit I'm perhaps not the most objective voice. On topic. <laughs>
0: well, uh, it's uh, interesting. I mean, only a handful of pharmacists, a, a bunch of emergency room physicians have yeah. gone into the CIA role. And I guess back in the day, that would have made sense. It would be interesting to look at which background really sets you up for success in that. All right. We're going to transition out of the honeymoon period, if you will, of the interview. One of the things I loved about talking with Darren is I could throw anything at him and he would just roll with it. So I'm going to, I'm going to do the same with you. I mean, you're CIO for the largest academic medical center. By the way, I did not know that stat west of the Mississippi. That's uh, that's really impressive. So what are the priorities right now for Cedar sinai
1: yeah, well, thanks all. I appreciated the honeymoon. I like to get at least a little <laughs> honeymoon period in, but that risks being a long answer, maybe because we have so much important work that we're doing, but maybe distilled to a sentence, it ties to our mission statement. You know, Cedars-Sinai has an unwavering focus uh, on providing quality, safe, equitable, and high-value patient care. And I think that's really foundational and it's understood across the organization. And in order to do that, As you can imagine, there's a number of priorities that sit under or adjacent to that. We have lots of high-priority items, things like excellence in clinical care and patient experience, excellence in research and medical education, innovation, integration of digital tech, advanced analytics, molecular medicine, talent, attracting, retaining, and developing staff, and a number of priority areas to support growth as we continue to Sort of evolve as a health system. But I think from sort of my perspective, we're sort of distilling it down even further, if it could be distilled down into a word, it's people. It's really about people. It's about people as patients, people as caregivers, people as staff. We have world-class technology, world-class clinical capabilities, but that doesn't stop us from asking ourselves, what can we do more of? How can we improve efficiency, quality, patient care experience, how can we ex- improve the experience for our caregivers and staff who depend upon technology? And we owe it to them to support the work they do every day. And so we ask the same qu- sort of questions. How can we make it better? How can we do- reduce friction? There's a number of areas that we're working on in that space. Just a couple of examples on the sort of staff front. We've got robots roving around the hospital to reduce pressure on nursing, to reduce steps, finding and delivering items needed for care, specimens, pumps, other supplies. We're deploying RFID solutions, tracking devices and equipment, again, making things easier to find, easier for the, sort of the nurse and the day-to-day experience. And These are little things that accumulate countless times a day, and there's really ways that we can improve those things. And then maybe even more broadly, a big project that we're working on is the ERP sort of back office transformation. I think many organizations who've spent the last decade plus implementing EMRs, we haven't spent as much time on the back office and giving them the attention that they need. And those are critical, critical functions to support the organization. And it's age old story, I think, of legacy systems, silos, disjointed manual workflows, perhaps some data fragmentation, and frankly, just a stale experience that hasn't really kept up with the times. And so... We're consolidating there onto a single platform. And we think that you know, that's gonna better, able, excuse me, better enable us to support processes for finance, for supply chain, modernizing processes around human resources, employee experience, analytics, and, and all of those sort of good things. But I think it again, it's about people and it's about a commitment to deliver contemporary tools modernize processes and allow our staff to do what they do best. Yeah. So
0: let me narrow down the conversation on a handful of those things. You mentioned a handful of times there, making the clinician's life easier and more productive and more satisfying. What are some of the ways that you're addressing that, especially in light of the staffing challenges that we're having across the industry?
1: Yeah, I think it's some of the examples I mentioned, and it's really looking, and we've got sort of clinicians within our IT department that are embedded within operational areas. And I think it's something that's been a longstanding sort of tenant and approach for us. And that enables us to really get in the weeds with folks, help translate and figure out how can we do things more efficiently, more effectively? How can we, it's simple things like flow sheet consolidation for nursing. If We start off with our sort of starter set up 200 flow sheets, and it requires this sort of difficult navigation, and we can get that down by a fraction of, down by 80 to 90%. Imagine what that does to the day-to-day sort of working life of the nurse who's trying to navigate those things. So I think it's just the little things that really accumulate that we really need to pay attention to, sometimes more so than some grand reveal or a big a big sort of showcase project like the ERP transformation, as I mentioned, not to take anything away from that, but from the clinical standpoint, it's the drip, drip, drip of things that slow slow down the day, the extra clicks, as I'm sure we've all heard about, and those are things that we need to focus on as well.
0: Yeah, the market you serve has always been fascinating to me. So telehealth is one of those things in an academic medical center, especially with a lot of specialties, has been hard to drive. But during the pandemic, we saw that that expanded. How has telemedicine, telehealth progressed since the pandemic at Cedars in your
1: community? I think the needle has moved back and forth quite a bit over the last couple of years. I'm not convinced we've landed on steady state really, nor nor do I think our patient population has fully decided what they prefer. I think we're still in some sort of an experimentation stage. But if I look back at the, I don't know, I guess, as the, in the context of the question, sort of the the before, during, and after. Uh, If there is such a thing as after COVID, I'm not sure when that'll be. I think we rapidly accelerated our capabilities around telehealth with COVID. And we don't have really good metrics around sort of what that looked like pre-COVID because we weren't really tracking it well, that well, and it wasn't very well deployed at that point. And so when we accelerated, I think at our peak, we were at around about, and this is probably in the springish of 2020, about 40% of all outpatient visits were either a telephone or a video visit. Roughly, I think, sort of split half and half with each of those modalities. And then as the clinics reopened, stabilized a bit. And I think we're today at a, probably about 12 to 15% of total sort of possible outpatient volume which varies a bit by area, internal medicine might be around 25%, most of which is video. And then some other areas that just don't lend well to in-person visits are much, much smaller. And there are some visits that are impossible to do um, sort of in a telehealth function. So myob and imaging and infusion and all that. So sometimes hard to sort of weed out the numerators and the denominators. Do you
0: expand your capabilities to these partner hospitals that You talked about Delray and Huntington. I mean, because you have such great specialists in the medical center.
1: Yeah, yeah, we do actually. We have the sort of suite of, of tools and capabilities. And as we expand, we deliver that same sort of suite of capabilities to each of our affiliates as we implement our EMR. So it's all, of course, loaded through our EMR. and We use those tools and in the background. So talk to me a
0: little bit about the consumer and healthcare. You're in an interesting market in that, again, it is highly competitive. You have a lot of the tech companies there. I think a lot of the health startups, when they think, oh, we're going to do a test market, they might start in San Francisco, but they're quickly down in LA doing these tests and whatnot. How are you approaching the consumer of healthcare in your market? What are you doing to transform that experience?
1: Yeah. Well, we're always looking to improve our capabilities and really to ensure that patients have multimodal access tools. So if it's an in-person experience, we support that through technology via automated decision trees, really streamlining that registration and check-in process. We have kiosks for those who prefer self-service, and there's online tools, of course, for online scheduling and e-check-in and so forth. And it's really, I think you said it well, it's a drive to keep up with and perhaps get ahead of if we can. patient and the consumer expectation and sort of as we design these solutions we work closely with focus and patient experience groups to make sure that what we're designing in terms of our products meet consumer expectations and usability feedback and there's some work we're doing around digital first solutions that we're advancing in that space and then maybe more recently and again it feels a little bit like a little thing but it accumulates A recent example of consumer sort of trying to meet consumer expectations and experience. We rapidly deployed electronic consents, something that's tended to lag in healthcare, where the, I don't know, the tried and true and overhead heavy paper experience, paper and faxing still prevails. Mm -hmm. We've had, of course, we've had electronic check in and some basic consenting enabled for quite a while now. But these new workflows are really around allowing the patient to electronically sign procedural and other consents, more like a DocuSign workflow in real time with a sort of a clinician or a caregiver sort of walking them through it. And as you know, this is technology that's widely adopted in other sectors with signatures. I mean who among us doesn't get a DocuSign once or twice a, a day or a week? And it's it's really I think about keeping up with consumer expectations, staying ahead where we can and hopefully improving some efficiency and in this case, saving trees in the process. And then there's a a number of other ways that from the sort of continuum of the patient journey, again, the in-house, we've got a bunch of in-room technology that we've deployed to support sort of, again, that contemporary experience with, we've got bedside tablets in every room that have access to the patient portal. They have entertainment sort of capabilities on them. Integration with the TVs, and we've got Amazon Alexa and all the rooms that are integrated with, with other systems and allow communications with nursing, and so again it's trying to stay ahead and, at the very least, keep up with, with those expectations.
0: Yeah, my gosh, it was always interesting to me to see all the different things that were happening in the market because every area wants to say they're the Silicon Valley, but there's enough Silicon Valley spillage down into Southern California that. Every time I turned around, there was something going on, some partnership going on that we had to be aware of, or some new player coming into the market that we had to figure out what they were doing. Um, I mean, but at the end of the day, it really is about just having your finger on the pulse of the communities that you serve. How do they want to be served? How do they want to partner with you in terms of healthcare and, and their health? And if you figure that out and you make those connections and become the trusted partner for the community, I mean, that's the uh, that's the secret sauce. It's not some new technology you're going to throw or whatever. It's integrating all of it. Here's my challenge to you. You took over after Darren. I figured by the time he was done that all the faxes would be gone at Cedars. So over the next couple of years, the, the challenge for you is to... Uh, to get rid of all the faxes at Cedar Sinai, what do you think the possibility
1: of that is? I think it's a lot about all. all is a big word, but I think we can get rid of most. Uh, and Darren did a great job chipping that away. But you know, these things are, and, and part of it ties to you know who we're faxing with or who we're communicating with, right? Some of these are external forces outside of our yeah. sort of area of control, and we have to meet our partners and payers and whoever else with whatever their current contemporary standard is.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, last couple of questions, probably two questions here. One, I want to talk to you about data. There's a lot going on in the data world. There's announcements with Google and major players. There's Truvetas out there and those kind of things. What's Cedars doing with regard to data and how are you thinking about it moving
1: forward? It goes without saying, but Our data, we really view our data as one of our most precious assets. And so we're very thoughtful about with whom and how it's shared. I recently read, and I haven't fact-checked it, but healthcare data is doubling at a rate of every 73 days. It's pretty incredible, even if it's anywhere close to that. And so I think that really just speaks to the, the potential for that to be a really powerful resource. And I think Cedars has a long, long history of innovation. And data is yet another way that we continue to innovate. We've got a we've got a department of a newer department of computational biomedicine, as well as a division of artificial intelligence that's looking to do that. And their work is about research and discovery with a heavy dependency on data, some of which is quite unique to our patient population. And so. These are folks who get up every day to develop and advance sort of solutions that have the potential to transform care.
0: Is it hard getting the data ready for artificial intelligence and in some of the some of the use cases that you're being asked to get it ready?
1: Perhaps I think it's more about availability, access, and looking at ways that we can do more in terms of self service tools for our community that community of researchers and folks who are accessing the data. And so I wouldn't say it's a matter of getting it ready. I think it's having the, the we're not necessarily always teeing it up for them sort of per use case. It's more about having the capability there so that they can in-reach and grab what they want when they need it. Uh, and it doesn't have as heavy a dependency on administrative overhead and a request process that allows them to sort of get what they need in close to real time.
0: I'll close you out with this question, and it's maybe an easier one, but it's a little harder in that it's uh, it's outside of your realm. And it's uh, we look at the world that's happening. One of the big stories has been One Medical being acquired by Amazon, and what that's going to mean. What do you think it is going to mean? Because you're probably one of the markets where One Medical does operate. What do you think that does mean?
1: Oh boy, there's been uh, there's been a lot said and written about that in the past few weeks. I'm not sure everything that newer novel to add to the opinions or the speculation, but I won't let that stop me. Look, it's no secret that Amazon certainly has struggled a bit in their initial healthcare ventures with Halo and Haven and PillPack and drugstore. I'm probably missing one or two. So I think it's perhaps easy for some of us to fall into the more skeptical, here we go again, reaction to one medical. But I think we'd all be wise not to underestimate them. They are certainly wise to sort of pay attention if anyone, I think, can disrupt healthcare, Amazon can, they're willing, and maybe more importantly, they can afford to try and fail. And it almost feels like a playground of sorts for them. And they paint a really compelling future state vision. Patient logs in, gets triaged, has an on-demand video visit, gets a home visit within an hour. And if needed, their prescriptions are on their doorstep within hours or the next day. Sounds delightful. I mean, if you're in a fortunate position that you need care urgently. And I think it's really the Amazon experience that so many have gotten used to. So I don't know, it's hard to know, but I do think Amazon eventually is going to find a sweet spot in the healthcare space. And I don't know, maybe building off of an established brick and mortar practice like One Medical might be the way that they're able to be most successful. I think it it also could help in unexpected ways. And maybe I don't know if this is a fair comparison, but I've heard John Mackey say, it was the Amazon acquisition that enabled Whole Foods to rapidly pivot and scale home delivery as COVID took off. They simply wouldn't have had the capability or the capacity to scale without Amazon. And so some of the ways that they can help or that may find a foot, maybe we can't even see at this point, which is all the more reason why we should pay close attention. And I don't know. I guess we'll see how it evolves in due time. And in the meantime, I do like my Amazon Prime membership. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I don't know if we're going to be seeing a of Amazon Health or whatever they want to call it at this point, or whatever it evolves to added to the prime membership, but it will be interesting to follow. I think organizations like Cedars are a little bit shielded. I mean, you have so many specialists. They're not getting into that high acuity care. They're not getting into those specialties. The academic medical centers, I think, are potentially going to be beneficiaries of the Amazon Uh, model. They'll triage, but at at some point they're going to say, Hey, we need to send these people somewhere for health and you're well-established in the communities that you serve. So I think there's a big benefit there. Craig, I want to thank you for taking some time to uh, spend with us, spend with community. I really appreciate it. I look forward to catching up with you again
1: real soon, hopefully in person. Indeed. Thank you, Bill. It's been great. I appreciate you having me on today.
0: What a great discussion. If
1: you know someone
0: that might benefit from a channel like this, from these kinds of discussions, go ahead and forward them a note. I know if I were a CIO today, I would have every one of my team members listening to a show like this one. It's conference level value every week. They can subscribe on our website, thisweekhealth.com or wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple, Google, Overcast, everywhere. Go ahead, subscribe today. Send a note to someone and have them subscribe as well. We want to thank our keynote sponsors who are investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Those are Sirius Healthcare, VMware, Transparent, Prescani, Sempris, and Veritas. Thanks for listening. That's all for now.